I'm Joel Parker, and this is Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. Coming up, part one of our graduation special edition, where we talk to PhD students about their thesis work, giving us a view of the cutting edge of new research. We begin with a science calendar event this week. At Fisk Planetarium this Friday, May 27th at 7 p.m., Fisk will be showing the full-dome film Big Astronomy, People, Places, Discoveries. This film explores three observatories located in extreme environments and remote locations in Chile. Due to its special climate and location, which creates stable and dry air, Chile is one of the best places in the world for astronomy. That's this Friday at 7 p.m. For more information, go to fisk.colorado.edu. That's f-i-s-k-e dot colorado dot edu. Although the weather in Colorado is still trying to figure out what season it is, is it spring? Is it winter? Maybe we should call it sprinter. It definitely at least is graduation season. High schools and colleges are celebrating the achievements and transitions of students who have spent years in study. So, today's edition of How on Earth is part one of our annual graduation special. Our guests are three graduate students who are getting their PhDs this year, and they have joined us to talk about their thesis research and their grad school experiences, including their thesis defense. Our guests are Varsha Kaushik, Sara Aguasvivas, and Jesse Finicaro. They are all graduates of the Computer Science Department at the University of Colorado Boulder. So let me start with Varsha Koshik. Varsha, I have your title as Designing Customizable Smart Interfaces to Support People with Cognitive Disabilities in Daily Activities. So can you tell me what that's all about? Yeah, people with cognitive disabilities often face challenges and remembering, planning, making decisions, which are all essential skills for everyday activities and also independent living. A lot of people with cognitive disabilities live in community homes with caregivers, but they do hope to live independently. They do use assistive devices like reminder applications on iPads or phones, but those devices are really small and easily misplaceable. They're also pretty passive in the sense 
people with cognitive disabilities need constant feedback. And all these devices provide us only instructions. So there's no instant feedback for every action. At the same time, these devices, like all the activities, when they receive instructions, they're kind of boring. So besides ability-based barriers, people also have motivational barriers that prevent them from regularly doing essential tasks that are tied to their independent living. Hmm. So to sort of address these concerns, I developed an augmented reality smart display, which I call Activity Mirror, which supports people with cognitive disabilities in their daily activities um, by providing stepwise guidance, helping them track progress, uh, but also using avatars, animations, and gamification features to make daily activities more fun. I've used qualitative research methods to test Activity Mirror in some preliminary studies with uh, people with cognitive disabilities and parents, and I've received some positive feedback that I, get, I can take ahead. Can you give some examples of the type of tools that you envision providing that are not just these passive tools that people maybe have been using in the past? Yeah, so the way Activity Mirror works is just imagine standing in front of your mirror, you know, in a bathroom when you wake up in the morning, but except that your favorite celebrity, let's say Drake, is <laughs> talking to you and motivating you to brush your teeth, telling you each step and helping you track the two minutes, which is the appropriate amount of time for brushing. Hmm. Maybe Drake is singing while you're brushing for two minutes or you're watching a concert or something like that. But you also see yourself. So you see yourself and you see Drake. So the key is to see how you're doing, but also getting this motivational feedback and support while you're doing a task. And, you know, it might seem silly, but brushing teeth is a very important task of the day. And it's important to do it for an appropriate amount of time, which is two minutes. This seems like a very valuable use of augmented reality since you're still seeing yourself or the real world, but you have these other ways, prompts for motivating a task or completing a task. What was your motivation in picking this topic? What grabbed you about it that made it a thesis topic for you? I was initially a master's student and I got introduced to accessibility research. I have worked with students with visual impairments in the past and on accessible programming languages or coding languages. Then I started working with adults with cognitive disabilities, trying to see why they have been so interested in learning programming. And one of the reasons was to modify their assistive devices. They were super excited. They wanted to become programmers so they could adapt their assistive devices to support their individual needs. So when I started learning more about this, that sort of led me towards a prototype, which is Activity Mirror. It's like, oh, what about an augmented reality display where they can see themselves and they can customize the support that they receive as well, whether that's getting video feedback or getting stepwise instructions, or maybe they want some media options, or even the way the instructions or prompts, as they call it, are structured in the task is different for everyone because their abilities are in a wide range. So that sort of led me to this work. This is thesis work that probably involved interaction with those people as part of the development process. So you really had buy-in and experience from those. What kind of feedback did you get? What did you find most useful in that process? People with cognitive disabilities were involved throughout the design process. So I used this method called participatory design 
where the users are the designers. They create designs. So before I made Activity Mirror, I had preliminary studies where I asked people with cognitive disabilities to come up with designs for Activity Mirror. Then I sort of consolidated and used their designs to make my prototype. And then I went back to them and I presented it and asked them for their feedback. And they really liked the avatar feature. They were so connected to, we even had a Drake avatar. Um, <laughs> which was uh, pretty funny and uh, exciting. So they were able to see an avatar, which kept their attention, which is again, a challenge within this community to maintain attention. They also liked its simple design. They liked the ability to change instructions. So in Activity Mirror, they can customize, they can add new instructions. So they really liked all of those features. Thank you very much, Farsha. I would like to move now to Sarah Aquasivivas. Her title is Material Integrated Prediction Control in Distributed Learning in Soft Robots. So can you tell us a little about that, Sarah? Yeah. So soft robots are robots that are made of squishy and pliant materials, such as rubber, could be silly putty-like materials, or it could be a t-shirt. T-shirts and fabrics are, you know, under the umbrella of soft robotics. So what I've been focusing throughout this thesis work is in enabling soft robots with the uh, sense of proprioception. Proprioception in humans is the sense that allows us to get, for example, if I ask you to have your pinky and thumbs touch together, you don't even have to look at it or you don't have to use any other like landmark mm -hmm. to do that because our uh, muscles and you know ligaments tendons they have the hardware to provide the brain with feedback from our position and that's why they call it uh, the sixth sense because it's like it doesn't require uh, eyesight it doesn't require any any other sense in fact there is a case of a person who lost their proprioception because of some autoimmune disease and the person was able to move, but he wasn't able to control his motion. Hmm. So when we don't have good proprioception, like babies, we kind of do these uncontrolled motions uh, and flail our arms and legs around. And as we grow, we refine this proprioception. Athletes have a more advanced sense of proprioception, like ballet dancers, but we refine our proprioception and it helps us move with a lot of finesse. And I have been enabling soft robots with proprioception, but I noticed that most of the research that has been done on learning the proprioception, on modeling the proprioception, on controlling the robot to use their proprioception to have fine movement, they build algorithms that can only be executed by a large PC. So when you look at the demo, you see a cable that tethers the robot to a large PC. And the reason is because we use the same methods of modeling and control that we use for rigid robots that are usually plugged with you know, large PCs. So soft robots have in them uh, very low power computers. And my work has been mostly deploying advanced prediction control and learning algorithms in those low power computers. 
yeah, that's kind of the summary of it. In order to have the robot predict, learn its proprioception, and also control emotion with finesse. It sounds like you're working with a number of unusual constraints here. You know, first of all, the soft robots, which, as you mentioned, could take a lot of different forms. They could be very small, so low power. You don't want to be carting a PC in a backpack with you, so untethered, as you've said. So can you give some examples of how you might use one of these soft robots in what environment? Yeah, that is a really good question. Most of the untethering promises for soft robots come from the prospect of exploring Mars. In um, difficult terrain exploration, if you have a rigid robot and the robot falls in a crater or, you know, flips or whatnot, the robot could lose its hardware. You know, the impact could really affect the hardware within the robot. But the advantage of the soft robot is that these pliant materials are able to absorb these impacts. And we promise stuff like Mars exploration, deep sea exploration, and also internal human body exploration. Uh, And these are all operations that require untethering. Another example is wearable technology, where the way it's commonly done is you have the low power compute unit stream raw data to uh, an iOS device or an Android device. And then the iOS device processes that. The thing I'm most passionate about is not having to stream that raw sensor data. And instead you have, you know, a smarter low power computer. Some of the aspects I think you mentioned in your thesis is neural network training as an example. And you talked about a baby still learning its proprioception Do you imagine these robots as maybe having some initial programming like a baby does, but learning on the job, as it were? Yeah, yeah. So the very last little bit of my dissertation work was having proprioception models that evolve through time. Uh, And the way I do it is by uh, having multiple low power computers learn just chunks of the knowledge and uh, propagate what it knows into, you know, knowledge that it hasn't created yet, kind of distributing that learning algorithm into multiple low-power computers. Thank you very much, Sarah. Next, we have Jesse Finacaro. Jesse, I believe your title of your thesis is Designing Consistent Convex Surrogate Losses for General Prediction Tasks. Now, I recognize all those words, but maybe not in that particular order. So can you explain what your thesis is about? Yeah. So for like a little bit of context, I sit in a computer science theory group, which basically means that we study like the math behind computer science. So a lot of the research that I do is very proof-based and less programming or experimental per se. I essentially think about theory of machine learning in the sense of A lot of times we use machine learning to make predictions about future events. And so the way that I like to think about this is we're answering questions. Like you could ask the question of, is it going to rain tomorrow? And this is maybe a slightly different question than what's the probability of rain tomorrow. And maybe you have some weather data, you have like today's rain forecast and atmospheric pressure, whatever. And you know that maybe you have this belief of there's a 75% chance of rain. And so 
the answer to will it rain tomorrow, maybe you'll say yes, because you're more likely than not, as opposed to actually saying this probability is 75%. And so for like kind of standard questions like those, we know how to design what we call loss functions or error measurement in order to actually learn these tasks or be consistent for them. But you can imagine more general prediction tasks where maybe you want, one thing I'm studying right now is like, maybe you want a really high confidence classifier where you're only predicting like, oh, I'm only going to say that it's going to rain if I'm 80% sure or more. And then I'm actually like, I want to train my algorithm to say, I don't know. So this is something I've been thinking about is if you're looking at uh, medical images, sorry, I'm maybe going off on a tangent, but Tangents are great. (laughs) Perfect. I have a friend who does work on modeling like tumor movement. If you're looking at breast conserving surgery and you want to make sure that you get all of the tumor in order to reduce the probability that you need to perform surgery later on. Now you need to make sure that you're absolutely certain. So if you're using like an algorithm to try and segment where this tumor is, If you're saying like that there's no tumor in cells where there is just because your algorithm isn't very confident or it's like pretty sure that there's no tumor, maybe we want to be able to design algorithms that actually flag this and then reduce workload on like a human annotator, uh, but kind of allow for this human to come into the loop at maybe some reduced workload. And so for maybe less standard questions like this, we don't really know how to go from this like question that we're asking to this error function that corresponds to the problem. And so some of the work in my dissertation basically develops this framework and uses some pretty cool geometry. It sounds very much like you're working at this interface with a deterministic system like a computer program and the shall we say, non-deterministic or fuzzy world of humans, where we may say, oh, I don't know, maybe or sort of, but how do you get a computer to understand that and to give you feedback? Is that kind of along the line of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think that's one aspect of it. What got you interested in this aspect of computer science? This is maybe not the answer that people should hear, but uh, I (laughs) know there are many paths, so it's good to hear them all. Yeah, I actually did some work in computer vision when I was an undergrad. And I remember I actually met Sarah at our like open house interview weekend, like five years ago now, because I was interviewing with her advisor to potentially work. And basically when I was in this computer vision lab, everybody told me, oh yeah, no, just do it this way. Like that's what this algorithm is doing. And we were kind of just tinkering with things. And that to me was really like frustrating that I didn't understand why things were working and that I was just kind of using this black box tool. And when I was telling this to Nicholas, he basically immediately told me like, yeah, you sound like you should be in a computer science theory group, not a robotics group. (laughs) Um, And then he connected me with Roth, who is now my advisor. That's a great path. A lot of people think grad school is like, I know what I want to do and I'm going to go do that. And you find out that it's really kind of a random walk. It's what advisor has money with an interesting project or someone that you happen to talk to at a mixer or anything like that can divert your path. That's part of the excitement of some of the things that you can do in grad school and where it might lead you. I know that Varsha 
and Jesse, you both have defended already. Is that correct? But Sarah, you haven't yet. So maybe I'll start with Varsha. What was your defense like? And was it what you expected? My defense was really good. I, I expected harder questions uh, compared to my dissertation proposal, which was a milestone that happened a year before the dissertation defense. People really loved the presentation. It went really well. Uh, but my advisor says that's how it should be. Uh, that's kind of expected that the dissertation proposal is a lot harder and the defense is slightly softer or milder in terms of questions. But overall, it went really well and I was very happy about that. Usually with good interactions with your advisor, you don't give your defense till you really are ready and you know, you know everything. You are the expert in the room at that moment. So I'm glad to hear you had a good experience with that. Jesse, what was your experience like? Well, I think mine was similar, but I also blacked out like all of the questions at this point, And it was only four days ago. Um, <laughs> so if you ask me about the questions, I have no idea. But the presentation itself was pretty smooth. Good. They, they taught you the secret handshakes. Everything <laughs> passed, right? Yeah. So, Sarah, how are you preparing for your defense? Yeah, uh, I have uh, really supportive lab mates and uh, they agreed to uh, sit through my dry run of the presentation and give me their feedback. And I really appreciate that. And yeah, uh, making sure my slides don't take too long and listening to Varsha and Jesse, uh, no compare the proposal to the dissertation defense, uh, it's been helpful too. <laughs> it's, it's always nice to see others go before you and test the waters. <laughs> Let me just finish up by um, asking each of you, again, paths are different, not only just a path to what topic you pick for your thesis, but your greater life path. How did you get there from being the the six-year-old kid you were to college to the thesis. And so if we have some of our listeners who maybe are on the younger side and think computer science sounds cool and I like working with that, either what was your path or what is your advice for someone who may want to go all the way to PhD? So Jesse, let me start with you. Do you have any suggestions on that? I actually started college not knowing what computer science was and only took a CS class because I had to for my other major. But I think the advice that I would give is to like, just remember that computer science is like a lot more than programming. And um, I think that there's like this beautiful aspect of computational thought that we can kind of use to understand the world around us. And I think that's like what makes computer science fun. To me, it's not programming, but that's why I do the math of CS. Excellent. And what about you, Sarah? Yeah, so, so my path to CS was a little bit nonlinear. I uh, started out, uh, well, I did my bachelor's in aerospace engineering and also a master's. And then when I was in the master's, I was introduced to... Uh, you know, some machine learning uh, topics, and that made me pursue the CS degree in at CU Boulder. 
And yeah, just like Jesse said, I realized that uh, CS is more than just coding and, you know, yeah. That I hear that a lot for computers. It's like people who go into astronomy. It's a lot more than staring up at the sky and knowing the name of the stars. <laughs> so, so Varsha, what about you and your path or your mentoring recommendations? Um, my, my path was also slightly different. I grew up in India where I did my undergrad in computer science, not knowing what computer science actually involved. And there, the education system is quite conformist uh, and you don't have a lot to explore. So I had like, I had no research experience whatsoever in my undergrad. And I came here to see you to do my master's and I took a class on human computer interaction and accessibility. I was so enamored by the class that I was like, I wanna keep doing this. I, I don't wanna, leave this. And so I decided to work, approach a professor, just basically walk up to the professor in week two and say like, I want to work with you. And that's how, that's how I got introduced to accessibility. And I decided to stay on to do a PhD. Well, thank you all very much for taking the time to be on our show. Those guests were Varsha Kaushik, Sara Aguasvivas, and Jesse Finacaro, graduate students who just completed their PhDs in computer science at the University of Colorado Boulder. Join us for next week's How on Earth on May 31st for part two of this graduation special when we talk to four more graduating PhDs about their work. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Blue Claw Philharmonic. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. Joel Parker